everyone, and welcome to another fantastic episode of Adventures in DevOps. I'm Nell Shamrell Harrington, one of your hosts, and with me as always is my co-host, Chuck. Chuck, how are you doing today? I'm great. How are you? Doing fantastic. It's a gray, cold, damp day in Seattle, but uh, that is par for the course in December. Nice. Well, uh, cold, damp. Yeah, it, it gets cold here too, but yeah, you just, you deal with it, right? It's true. Yep. You, you learn, you learn uh, how to deal with it. Uh, space heaters have come a long way in my home office. I First thing in the morning is I turn one on my feet for just about 20 minutes or so, and it usually warms me right up. Nice. Yeah, I just, I control my uh, thermostat upstairs and sometimes it's actually too warm, even though it's cold outside, so. Today's podcast is sponsored by UpCloud. Is your website running slow? Supercharge your hosting performance by deploying on the world's fastest cloud infrastructure. UpCloud offers superior cloud servers and advanced scalability, instant backup snapshots, and easy to use control panel. Fully featured API and a ton of integration options and managing partners. Pricing starts at only $5 a month with enough performance options to host any website or app. All backed by 24 seven live in-house support. You can get started today with a free trial using promo code DevChatTV at upcloud.com slash signup. They'll give you a $25 credit to get you going. Remember, upcloud.com slash signup with promo code DevChatTV. All right. And with us today, we have two special guests. We have Troy and Tobias. Uh, let's start with Troy. Hello. Hello. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks. I'm the only one here in a short sleeve shirt, so I must be in California. So You must be indeed. Yes. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. All right. And Tobias, how are you today? I'm doing good. I'm uh, calling from Victoria, so not too far uh, from yourself. I'd like to say it's very uh, sunny here uh, <laughs> and, and that uh, Olympics are protecting me, but not today. It's cold, rainy, much the same. Cool. Well, we are very glad to have you two on the show. I'd like to start off by opening it up. Tell us a little bit more about yourselves. You can go ahead, Troy. Okay, great. Appreciate that, Tobias. So uh, my name is Troy McAlpin, and uh, I'm the CEO of X Matters. We are uh, a company that started up to help folks that are in the areas of development and DevOps practices and site reliability engineers. So we, um, we run a software service that helps people keep their services up and running so that they can provide great services to their customers. Cool, yeah, and my name is Tobias Duncron. I'm the CTO at X Matters. Uh, my responsibility here is development, testing, operations, and product strategy. So those are the areas that I focus on day to day. And I'm just gonna chime in because uh, some people are curious about how we get these lined up. Um, I had a ticket to KubeCon and I was gonna go down and meet up with folks and I wound up not being able to go. So we kind of lined this up this way <laughs> instead, so. It's a virtual KubeCon. And this one's probably not as much fun as the in-person version. So you, you did miss Oh, don't it. tell me that. I was so disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, sunny San Diego. And it was, it was a That's time. true. It is sunny down there. <clears throat> this is true. Yeah. Cool. So it sounds like you're in the, I think it's called the APM, the Application Performance Management Space. Is that correct? That's, that is close. We definitely are related to APM. We're in the incident management space. So it's ensuring that when people are... Um, building services and deploying them and trying to keep them uh, up and available for customers to use them. That if anything goes bump in the night, our job is to help guide people through the resolution process so they can restore those services. And hopefully the customers are unaware of anything going bump in the night. So that is, that's where we tend to spend most of our time. I have definitely been woken up by things going bump in the night on applications that I support. So uh, very much respect what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. And, uh, you know, Tobias gets to live that real time, both in building the product, uh, but also helping us to build the services that support our product, supporting our customers. And getting woken up. It's a very meta experience. I know you're supporting the service that people use to support the services and it, it, it becomes inception really, really quickly there. <laughs> yeah, it's incidents all the way down. Gotcha. So are uh, your primary audience developers, operations professionals, a mix of the two? I'll, I'll answer that. So uh, we, our, our customers range quite a bit uh, from uh, small teams 
that might be using X Matters as part of a you know three to four person dev team that's supporting small application all the way up to uh, the world's largest enterprises. So uh, we have quite a variety in our customer base and our use cases. And in terms of uh, incident management, that could mean simply getting paged out and being notified you have to go and fix your product or coordinating uh, you know, a, a large and lengthy response to a, a major incident for a corporation. So could it, those incidents could be as, as small as, you know, just get on, get on it and fix the problem to uh, notifying stakeholders, notifying customers uh, of, of an impact, deflecting support cases. Yeah. So quite a, quite a variable range of incident responses that we support. I know the uh, solution uh, I'm personally most familiar with is PagerDuty. Uh, how is your solution different? Uh, do you want to talk about that, Craig? Or, or, sorry, Troy, or shall yeah, I? I think we can both chime in. I think. Okay. Uh, so one of the things we want to do, we assume that we've woken you up in the middle of the night. And uh, so we want to start walking you through um, the this, this series of steps that you would normally want to go through. So that would include grabbing information from different systems or logs, uh, getting performance information from an APM application, and serving that up to you at the moment we wake you up. But we then want to start guiding you through what's the likely things that you would want to do in order to solve or resolve the issue and bring the service back, which might be uh, rolling back to the last build or looking to see who made the last deploy um, in order to help you start making decisions and get you to resolve those issues quicker. So in order for that actually to work, um, we you need to be able to build these process flows very easily and share them across teams and across an organization. So you can refine them and get better and better and better at this. So really what we're trying to do is not just wake, you know, waking people up has been going on for 20 years. We're trying to get to a place where we can help you automate the resolution. I like that a lot. So much uh, in the DevOps world, as well as the you know, greater technology world, we hear about shifting left, moving things like your testing earlier, your security processes earlier, but it sounds like that the incidents still happen even when you do shift left. Yes, I, I agree completely. So uh, you can you can apply all sorts of uh, testing and quality strategies. Uh, you can you know focus on unit testing, integration testing. Um, you can do transaction replays uh, with production transactions, et cetera, et cetera. You can um, you know use canarying strategies, but no matter what you do, there's nothing as crazy as production. And so when something really does go wrong in production, you need to, need to be able to respond to that very quickly. Yeah, one thing that I, I see with a lot of this is just, you know, you're saying, yeah, if something goes wrong in production, you need to respond to it relatively quickly. But it seems like there are gradations to that too, right? I mean, some things it's, you know what, um, sorry, we woke you up, deal with it in the morning. And some of it's, you know, the, the house is on fire, so don't even get dressed. Just log in and fix it. Um, and some things are, you know what? We, we're we not even going to prioritize this because nobody really is going to care. Yeah. Um, and so I'm wondering, how do you make those judgment calls? I know every team is going to be different, but you know, especially across large companies where there's there are a lot of stakeholders, a lot of hands in the pie. I'll yeah, comment I think on things and, and Go ahead, try. I'll just I'll comment on a couple of things to let you chime in, Tobias, because I think, you know, it's it's not just on the really large organizations where it gets complex, but if you think just through the last, you know, some of the major shifts in the way work gets done and how things have changed over the last five years, the more things that have shifted left, uh, the more we've started to break the work down into microservice teams. So it's not just, you know, three departments injuring one another accidentally. It's now... Um, dozens or hundreds of teams working independent of one another and maybe not as tightly coupled as they may have been in the past. And so you have the possibility of just more errors entering into the process. And it kind of flies contrary to our normal thinking that, you know, we want to make as many changes as possible in small increments because theoretically we're reducing the risk. But, you know, one of the challenges I think we found in the recent survey we did was that the more times you change things, the more risk you're introducing just because something has changed. Uh, and so it is that is what we're seeing is a lot of teams are suffering from this and it puts them into a state of toil where you have teams working on dealing with problems that may or may not been the, the direct cause of the um, of something they did individually. It's the the always the hardest part is to test is the uh, interactions between various services or if you have a distributed system, the interactions between the different parts of the distributed system. I mean, it's so hard to predict uh, what might go wrong. 
Yes, and in, in a cloud environment, um, you know, there it's a very dynamic environment. So you have new services spinning up all the time. You have old services being deprecated and removed from service. Uh, you have uh, individual services scaling up and down as as demand increases and decreases. So uh, observ observability is obviously a challenge. And uh, getting back to uh, the the question on how do you decide what the impact of a particular event is, ultimately what you're concerned about is customer experience. So you have to make a call based on all of your uh, observable signals uh, within your environment. And uh, obviously the ones that affect end users are are the most important and x matters endeavors to uh help you out before you get to that point yeah that makes sense and when, when you're dealing with yeah the customer facing stuff i mean it's funny because i recorded an episode of freelancer show earlier today and we were talking about courses and it was the same thing right it's like what's the outcome what's the impact what you know and and so it it I don't know. We, we kind of focus on the technology, but what it really boils down to is what's the actual experience? What's the story that's being told? And if the story is, is, you know, you do this, you do this, you do this, and then something breaks, that's not a good story. It is not. And I think we're, you know, again, kind of looking at all the things we're doing to better align the person that makes the service with the person that consumes the service. A lot of the changes we've made in how we do are, are sort of evolution, right? Like we're still... We're still writing code. We're still testing the code. We're still deploying it. We're still putting it in a productive state for someone to go consume. But the way we work today is different. That now, you know, our teams are very closely aligned directly with the person that's consuming it. Uh, and so, you know, obviously the hope is that we can do it better and faster. But it's also the hope that the person that's producing the work is directly correlated and directly related to the customer because we believe that they're going to be able to do a better job. Um, and so I think that's, that is an important part of what we're seeing with changes and how that work gets done. Um, but, you know, the downside is that if there's, if there's ever an interruption, then it means that we have to be responsible uh, for it uh, to ensure that um, uh, we're able to keep that service up and going. It's a little bit like uh, you mentioned an earlier, an earlier uh, interview you did. We have customers that are using our product outside of traditional use cases. And um, an incident is an incident. So we have recently, a, a um, if you're familiar with the tragedies in Australia with the wildlife fires, um, we've donated our service to one of our customers called Wires, who is a wildlife rescue. And their incident is that a koala needs to be rescued uh, and you have to find the right qualified people uh, to be able to respond to that incident as quickly as possible. It ultimately is the same thing as a technology issue, but it's, it's uh, making sure you've got the right people responding as quickly as possible. Well, thank you for helping to save the koalas. Yes, that is, that's the actual important work. Technology, keeping it up, that's important, but koalas are really important. Oh, they're so cute. Yeah. Uh, so something, I, a couple of abbreviations I found get thrown around a lot when we talk about instant response. There's SLO, which is service level objective. There's SLA, which is service level agreement. And then there's a new one we've been hearing about. And I think I'm hearing some of this in your uh, description of your, uh, of your service, which is service level indicator or SLI. That's right. So service level indicators and objectives are highly related. So service level indicator will be the actual metric that you're measuring to determine the health of a particular service. Whereas the objective is uh, very much like an SLA. It's, a, it's an internal agreement that you have uh, between product management and uh, engineering on what the expected behavior of a system is. And uh, this is something that we've been able to adopt uh, to great effect um, in X Matters. And I think uh, the, the key part of this is these things are expressed in, um, in terms of customer value. So uh, SLAs typically exist at the business level where you have a very broad description of the service you're providing uh, to your customer and, and what the expectations on that are. Whereas SLOs and SLIs are sort of one step down from that on the technology scale. So you might have, for example, uh, service level objectives on an API. It's a fairly technical interface, but what matters to API users is how fast is that API going to respond when I when I call a particular method or 
uh, perhaps how many times out of 10,000 am I going to receive an error when I call this API? So uh, I think I think SLOs, SLOs and SLIs are very interesting in terms of getting the conversation going between uh, product groups and engineering groups uh, when it comes to finding the right balance between uh, resiliency and feature velocity. So it's always a trade-off between how fast you're going to deliver the next batch of features versus um, you know what is the uptime of your system over the course of the year. And, uh, and SLOs and SLIs are, are a great way to argue that out in advance of an incident uh, to take the, take the emotion out of, uh, out of uh, finding that balance because you're not doing so in a crisis. Yeah, in a crisis is the absolute worst time. I found to be trying to figure out what your SLOs are, what your SLIs are, et cetera. You're, you're kind of highlighting you know, the classic tension between dev and ops, where it's developer's jobs to add new features, to change the software, and it's operations job to keep the site running, to keep the site resilient, et cetera. And it feels sometimes like those are conflicting goals. So it sounds like using things like SLOs, SLIs is a good way to start bridging that gap. Absolutely. Yeah. And and like I say, I think uh, coming up with good SLOs uh, really reflect uh, the customer experience rather than a particular technical attribute of the system. Um, so uh, that, that's been interesting to hash those out. And also um, another, another sort of uh, aspect of SLOs that I, that I think is worthy of mention is percentiles. So um, it's very easy when you come up with a metric to have important um, events in terms of the customer experience hide in the averages. Um, but if you do a good job of defining percentiles, like for example, I want my API to respond under 100 milliseconds, 99.9% .9 of the time, and it's okay if that 0.01% of the time uh, we have a spike. Having having those conversations in advance as well is is useful as well because you can skew towards hyper conservative um, SLOs or to loose SLOs very easily if you um, if you're looking strictly at averages. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of wondering because yeah, you you've given us some guidelines, but yeah, is is the speed and percentage like how do we come up with those numbers? Because it still feels like pulling numbers out of the air. This is where we'd like to be, but you know, reality may be wildly different from that. And so I'm wondering if you can set an objective for right now. We have ninety percent, you know. And so our, our current objective is to get to 95% or if you should, you know, so should you be measuring it for a while and then set an objective, an SLO or an SLI, or do you turn around and, you know, say, well, this is kind of the ideal. And then, you know, find out that you're a ways away from, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of wondering what the process looks like for really setting that up and really kind of framing that conversation so you can set a realistic goal and then improve on it. Here at X Matters, it's built into the agile process, so it's quite iterative. Um, over the course of you know various sprints uh, completing, we might find that um, we receive feedback from customers that our SLOs are not good enough. We might uh, get feedback that from our our product owners that velocity is not going fast enough, and we and our customer experience is fine. We need to um, you know shift back and forth. So. It's ongoing. Uh, we also find uh, new SLOs to define as we as we uh, get a better idea of the customer experience. So very iterative uh, approach for us. Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood and I just launched my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. It's up on Amazon. We self-published it. I would love your support. If you wanna go check it out, you can find it there. The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. Have a good one, Max out. I also want to just throw at you the fact that this is very culturally driven. I mean, you're all open to having this conversation. And I've worked in organizations where the, at the end of the day, the CTO just kind of is used to mandating these kinds of things. And so how, how do you, how do you move the conversation so that it can, ha or move the culture so that it can happen? Uh, well, I think that comes down to, um, giving teams autonomy in a number of ways. So you wanna make sure that uh, your teams that own the underlying services that, that comprise your overall service to your customers, um, you wanna make sure that those teams have a sense of ownership over, um, over their 
the services uh, that they're responsible for. And the only way to do that, in my opinion, is to give them the autonomy that they need. Um, you've given them all the responsibility, so it's only fair that you <laughs> give them the uh, autonomy to uh, choose how they want to provide a great service. Uh, in, in particular, they should have autonomy over um, the tools that they're using in order to uh, produce that service, monitor that service, um, you know, resolve issues with that service. And you also need to provide them with the autonomy of finding the right balance with their product owner as to uh, the non-functional aspects of their service. So uptime, uh, throughput, uh, all of these types of non-traditional things that aren't traditionally considered features of a service. So that, I think that's the heart of it is uh, giving teams autonomy. Yeah, that makes sense. Sorry, I stepped out for a minute and came back. So I hope I didn't derail by asking my questions, but those are kind of what came to mind there. Do you have any uh, kind of success stories you can share with us of that kind of cultural change when it comes to incident management? Yeah, so I mean, I think uh, largely what Tobias was talking about earlier with this notion of autonomy, that um, with companies that have been, you know, quote unquote, born in the cloud, or maybe have started off with smaller organizations and grown up with, you know, they started off with Scrum. And so because they started off with Agile or with Scrum, they've been able to layer on other practices easier. Um, when you look at some of the larger enterprises or maybe traditional enterprises, bricks and mortar type of enterprises that have been around for a long time, um, this is a significant shift in the way of thinking uh, in that you're going to be giving autonomy to teams that you've essentially been mandating to in the past, that we're, we're going to be requiring you to deliver um, this SLA or at this level um, of service. And this is our agreement. We will fund you in exchange for providing us this level. Um, one of the things that I think is really important from a culture shift perspective is that having data to go off of in, in making this into a discussion is really important. So as you're starting to look at SLOs or SOIs or your response to incidents or your uptime, um, having the data to come back and say, this is the number of customer uh, impacting events we have. This is the impact on um, the service that we can provide. This is the cost. Um, that it takes from us from a velocity perspective in order to provide that resiliency or that response level. And having that data to, to start that as a conversation so that when you're talking to the, to the business owner or the product owner or the service owner, um, it becomes a conversation around deciding, you know, am I willing to, um, you know, contribute more funding in exchange for either more reliability or more velocity with what we can do to bring to our customers. And I think we, we see that all the time in large organizations. We have one organization that is a top five global retailer that is both a bricks and mortar, mortar retailer as well as an online retailer. And what we've seen over the course of working with them for almost a, almost a decade now um, is we've seen a dramatic shift in the way um, they run their services to a point of where each individual microservice team has become completely autonomous um, they own their ability to come in and build their own um, incident management processes on how they're going to respond to incidents. They own their own abilities to build flows and integrations. They deal with their own schedules. They are in control of making sure that they can respond to um, uh, any incident in order to meet their objectives. The one thing or the one catch I would say is in these really large organizations, there's still a requirement to deal with the interplay between the services, you know, bad things tend to roll downhill, if you will. Uh, and so they can start with one service and then cascade to another, to another, to another. And that is a, that is a difficult thing for large enterprises to deal with. That's, you know, one of the things we help companies deal with is being able to see and have visibility across multiple microservices so they can see that service impact. Um, but in order to be successful, I think it starts off, as Tobias said, with having a data-driven approach, having the autonomy to get there and then having a system that helps people see across the different services that they're impacting. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I could definitely see where I have a microservice that hands off to another, to another, to another. Yeah, something breaks on the second one. And then it's like, <laughs> what went, where did it go wrong? Because I'm getting errors in three places. Yep. Current approach with a lot of large customers is they'll do an all hands call. So you'll bring in you know, somebody from all 50 services and get them on a conference call, total old school. And people will say not it and get off the conference call. And that is, that's a super inefficient way of dealing with it, especially when it's outside of business hours. Uh, so, 
you know, it's that is to me, that's just an indicator of change. We're heading in the right direction, but we need to continue to instrument the processes that we have in order to be able to do this efficiently and not burn people out. That's always the key, isn't it? Yeah. Tobias, what do you think about this? Uh, so in terms of X matters uh, internally, in terms of our success stories, I think most of them that I would uh, like to share are around our, our own journey from a premises-based software company a long, long time ago, prehistoric age to uh, becoming a, a pure cloud company. And uh, there, there are many steps along the way from um, uh, starting with like host, hosting software for customers in a co-location style uh, environment to uh, consolidating those within Colo into um, more like an MSP style um, offering to uh, taking all of that and moving it into the modern cloud. And at the same time, uh, going into multi-tenant multi-tenant microservice style architecture. And uh, I, I hate to harp on autonomy, but really that was successful based on uh, dividing up the responsibility for each of those uh, systems and letting the, letting the teams uh, figure out the best way to do that. Uh, my role as a CTO is not to go and do a bunch of research and figure out, okay, uh, these are the tools we're going to use. This is the architecture we're going to use. Go to it. I, I do not think we would have been successful. Um, I think the best ideas uh, come from folks who are, uh, you know, doing the actual work. And so uh, all of those, uh, being able to do that successfully and uh, seamlessly from the point of view of our customers uh, was largely based on the fact that, uh, you know, ideas came from the people who actually had to execute on those ideas and we're responsible for the outcome of those ideas. So uh, creating an environment where that is possible is more my job than dictating uh, the tools, processes, and um, whatever else. I like that. Uh, at Chef, we went through a big transition earlier this year to doing 100% of our major product development out in the open. And uh, one of the things I did was lead a big cross-functional team and figuring out, okay, how can we do this? And in the process, we decided, okay, every project should have a linter. Um, but then I had people pinging me uh, who use programming languages that I have not let go, that I have not personally used, asking, well, which linter should we use? And my answer was, oh, so I said, I don't care. I, I mean, I care. I care that they use them. But for what's best for a project that really should be decided by the people who are closest to the project, not someone from, not from someone who's far above uh, in a layer of abstraction. Yeah, exactly. So, and uh, that that actually brings up an interesting question about uh, polyglot microservices uh, and the how you decide whether you know it, you're going to adopt some, like let's say Scala for a microservice. Uh, it's it's actually a hard trade-off because if the developer community for a particular language or tool is small and it's not quite certain whether that uh, platform is going to take off, it is, it is risky. So you have to trade that off against, um, you know, whether or not that's the best tool for the particular job. It's also quite risky or not risky. It's, uh, it, it can be a mistake to apply a cookie cutter approach across all of your microservices in terms of, let's say, standards like you, like you say, like, uh, I don't think a linter would be particularly uh, controversial, but something like, uh, unit test coverage or something like um, static code analysis. Um, it, it really pays to pick and choose uh, what's appropriate for any particular microservice rather than um, just having a blanket policy and ending up with some, you know, very specific microservices that for which those things are really difficult to implement or not appropriate to implement. I, I love how this kind of exposes the roots of the DevOps movement that come from Agile here, right? Where it's you know, we're going to try this. Okay, not working. We're going to iterate on it or try something else. And, you know, and that every team, even though we're all working on the same problem set, may work differently enough to where we're using X matters and you're using some competitor because we think about these issues differently. Absolutely. And, and it is interesting. I mean, one of the things when you decompose into microservices and assign subject matter expertise or teams to those microservices, um, it it does increase velocity because you have um, 
more expertise for the services that you are supporting, but it also chases a lot of complexity into the boundaries between services. And I think that's where a lot of the interesting things happen. You mentioned earlier about, a let's say, a cascade fail- failure between microservices and how you might engage teams to resolve issues that span multiple microservices. Um, you also get situations where you get resentment from a downstream team that's been paged in the middle of the night because mm-hmm. one of the one of the services that they depend on has failed, and uh, so so all of these things are are quite new and emergent, and uh, I, I hope that we can help out with that. <laughs> Troy chuckled. I'm sure it's never happened to you, right? No, it's never happened here. <laughs> Only at our customers. It's never actually happened at X Matters. <laughs> Well, not this week, anyway. <laughs> We're on a roll. <laughs> so let's say we have, you know, kind of a legacy enterprise where there's a development team, there's an ops team, and let's say they want to kind of shift to that this more of a microservices architecture where teams are responsible for the individual services that they're working on. How, where would you suggest that they start? That, that's a very interesting question from a, a technical perspective. Uh, I, I think one of the, it, it's very difficult to determine what is the first bit that you're going to split off into a microservice and assign a team to, and let's say do an agile uh, development process on and, and DevOps style operations. Um, the, the reason that that's interesting and maybe scary is because you only get the chance to do that once. Uh, you, you only really get a chance to um, you know, decide on what your uh, your basic decomposition is going to be once. That's not exactly true. It, it's just costly if you change your mind. So there's lots of different approaches to that. One is uh, dividing up uh, your service by business function. So you know what 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 are the constituent parts of your service from your customer's point of view, and and carve up let's say a monolith into uh, functions that uh, that represent each of those uh, constituent parts. Another way of doing it would be um, by operational characteristics. So uh, I need this particular part of my monolith to scale independently of the other. So, you know, I, I want to prioritize operational characteristics. And it, it'll differ from um, from company to company what is the best choice there, but it it is scary. But for us, the the thing <laughs> the the way that we approached it was to take what is something that we can easily decompose into a microservice? And what, what is something that is actually going to be really hard to do so that we could uh, sort of prove out that we could do it for something easy and then get a view on all of the complications that we're going to run into uh, with, with the most complicated parts of our product. So uh, that, that would be my advice is to, is to take something hard and take something easy so you can get some success, but then also see where your risks lie. And I think culturally, what we see in some of our large enterprises is that they are, um, you know, experimenting by segment segmentation. So segmenting maybe at the business service level or at the application level. And so taking something specific like, you know, our mobile user interface, for instance, and moving that entire function, all of the teams associated with that business service into a different way of building and deploying their software and continuing to keep that team segmented from the rest. Um, of the technology organization while they're experimenting, while they're trying different processes and different ways of either decomposing the services or different ways of going through their builds um, to get to a point where they feel like they can replicate it. And then they start adding more and more business services to it. And so you start to see organizationally uh, sort of a mini dev shop in a dev shop that is you know, getting more and more success. And as it continues to get more success, and that usually comes from objective measurement like velocity and defect rate, um, then they start to get more resources and some of the traditional, uh, you know, even waterfallish ways of, of doing work um, tends to, to change and join the new side. And I think we're we're seeing that a lot actually with uh, some of our larger um, enterprises that are um, starting to segment how they how they build and how they deploy their technologies. Sounds very much like an evolutionary process where you you make changes to services, apps, you a, f- a few at a time, rather than a revolution where you might uh, decide you need to rewrite the whole thing, which there's no guarantee that that's going to work. That's right. If you have the luxury of starting a service over and throwing it away, that's uh, that's I think that's a luxury. I think oftentimes what we find is that 
enterprises have to keep a service available for customers uh, while changing. And you know, it's, it, it is still writing code, testing code, and deploying code. It's doing it in a different way, performing the work in a different way, and and more closely aligning um, those that build with those that consume, uh, and having kind of a straight line between those teams. And so, I, I think I think from my perspective. Uh, from a business ownership perspective, I think it is a higher level of job satisfaction. I, I like to know that people are actually consuming the work that I produce. It is It makes me feel better when I go home at night. And then the downside of it is that, you know, sometimes I'm on the hook for dealing with something that uh, maybe I could have sloughed off to an offshore department before and now it comes home to roost. Um, so that's the downside of it. But it certainly, I think, is is a lot more fun and, and definitely uh, provides a lot more job satisfaction over a career. Over the last many years, we've had a ton of terrific people on JavaScript Jabber. And one thing that I realized over the last few years was that we were missing out on some of the real story there. So we would talk about the topic that they were experts in and help you keep up on what's going on in the JavaScript community. But I felt like we had these terrific people on there and we didn't really talk about who they were. So I pulled together a show called My JavaScript Story. And what we do is we interview the people that we've had on JavaScript Jabber or people just from the community. Maybe we'll have you on sometime. And we talk about how they got into programming, how they got into JavaScript, what they're working on, what they're well known for, and how they've developed their career. And some of the people are extremely well known and come from really interesting backgrounds. So if you're curious about how your JavaScript heroes got into JavaScript, then go check out my JavaScript story. You can find it at myjsstory.com. One thing that I, I wonder about though, because you you wind up in this position now where you have this team or this part of the organization working with microservices and then you've got the other part working in the old way. And what I found is that that transition period gets weird, right? Because there's the way that we do things and then there's the way that we do things. And, mm -hmm. you know, and so hopefully, you know, and some people don't want to come along and some people still pine for the old, old way we did it. And, you know, and so there's some confusion about how we do it. And then there's other confusion about should I, you know, protest certain aspects of this and, and things like that, the, the political part of that. So how do you manage all of those elements of making a change like this so that people understand, A, what they're supposed to do, you know, what falls under their responsibilities, and then B, um, you know, work through the transition of getting everybody on board? Yeah. So you're asking us to explain human nature. How long do you have? <laughs> people have we, have, we have 20 minutes till the next one. No, no problem. Yes, we've developed software that will solve all those problems. No, um, you know, that's, that is, it's complicated. It is organizational change management and it's not simple. And so what we do when we're talking to our, because most of our customers are big, big companies, big enterprises, and they're dealing with thousands of personnel. Um, and so these changes are, you know, uncomfortable and they are large and they are business impacting. And so what we try to do is to counsel our customers to use technology to help instrument that journey that they're going to be on. Um, and so, you know, no one re in real life is going to literally stop what they're doing and then open up tomorrow as a pure DevOps shop. Um, and it's going to be a painful transition just because change uh, is, you know, closely related to fear, which is closely related to pain. Uh, and so what we tend to do is to, to counsel customers to start with smaller pieces like Tobias was talking about, you know, segment services where they can be successful and recognize that traditional ways of dealing with incident management still has to happen. You still will have cascading failures. You still will have major incidents that are outside of your control. And there is a place for everyone during this transition. Um, there's a place for the microservice team to be engaged in dealing with things proactively before there's an impact to the end customer. And there's still a place for people in the network operations center, the help desk, uh, the support organizations to help deal with problems that are bigger and across multiple services. As time goes on and you're continuing to instrument these processes and get success, learn from them and get better and better at it, um, our expectation and generally what we see happening is that people start to learn these new skills. Uh, and so, you know, maybe I was in a support department yesterday, but now I'm part of a DevOps team tomorrow because my skills are now, you know, have transitioned or are now related and more closely coupled with a microservice than they are with a, you know, with me supporting tens or dozens of services like I used to in the past. Um, and so we tend to see that the companies, you know, continue to retool and bring people on into these different service organizations. 
Uh, and so, you know, there is some additional learning that happens, I think, in organizations, but we've seen uh, many that are in process and, and have been successful um, by getting objective success and then retooling their personnel to help them, you know, transition into those uh, ways dealing with it. But it is definitely more complicated to operate in a um, environment with the new way of building and the old way of supporting. But that's, ex I think that should be expected for a period of three to five years that you're going to be in transition. It takes a long time to do this without interrupting the customer's experience. It sounds like there might be a bit of chaos uh, during that transition. Right, that's right. And our, our job from an incident management perspective is to help instrument that chaos and control it and hopefully reduce the impact of it um, so that you can visualize it as a business process, continue to refine it to make it better and better and less and less intrusive um, as you continue to get the learning that you're getting from experimentation and from continuing to get better and better. Awesome. The transition to um, engineers being on call is also a specific uh, uh, point of contention. And I think there's a few things worthy of mention there. First of all, um, right off the bat, getting your recruiting processes correct and um, recruiting folks that are up for that style of working, um, setting expectations very early on that uh, responsibility is going to be maybe more than you were used to 10 years ago or something like that. Uh, second would be compensation. So we're asking these folks to um, do something that is seems like something new on their on their list of requirements of, or list of responsibilities. So uh, it's very fair that they demand fair compensation for that. So what that looks like varies quite a lot from organization to organization, but uh, getting it right is a, a very important uh, part of retaining staff and, and having staff be happy with their responsibilities. And then finally, uh, when we're talking about on-call in particular, uh, removing as much of the chaos as possible from that is uh, this, here comes a shameless plug for X Matters. That's exactly what we uh, tried to do in terms of the on-call scheduling part, but also when you're involved in an incident, uh, having everything at hand, uh, having predefined workflows uh, so that you're not uh, inventing incident resolution in the middle of the night. There's an abbreviation, I think it comes from the Air Force, uh, UDA, observe, orient, decide, act whenever you're facing an incident or any kind of crisis. And it sounds like you are very much helping with the observe and orient uh, portions of that. That's exactly right. Yeah. And, and all the way through to act as well. I think we're, we want to help the person. I, when we did a, this survey that we recently performed, we found that 92% of DevOps professionals and developers realized that their job was directly aligned with a business service that someone was consuming. But I would hazard a guess, and this is a guess, that most of the people that entered into this career went into development not because they were gregarious and wanted to fight fires, um, but because they were strong in math, strong in computer science, wanted to build things, they were creators. And now they find their job descriptions changing. Now, all of a sudden, they're major incident managers, they're on the line, people are screaming and yelling. Uh, it's not a comfortable situation to be in, especially if that's not what you were hoping for um, and you're learning this sort of new skill. So we think that technology plays an important role in this in guiding somebody through an uncomfortable situation, uh, reducing the uncertainty, reducing the, the series of options that you might take that could be incorrect, and hopefully guiding them towards the fastest resolution in a way that is not so uncomfortable. Um, and so I, you know, I think what we find is... Um, our hope, of course, is all these incidents go away, but even in the midst of transition, we found that 57% of uh, the respondents out of 300 respondents said that they have an, a major incident on their microservice at least once a week. So that's frequent. That means it's happening a lot, and it's partially because they're making so many changes all the time. They're, they are introducing the opportunity for something to go bump in the night. Um, so with those kinds of, of um, response rates, we want to make sure that we're helping them you know, keep their sanity. And we thank you for that. <laughs> People that get a call from our system at two in the morning are not always thanking us, but we hope that eventually they will thank us. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. Awesome. Well, we are starting to come to the end of the hour. Is there anything uh, anyone else would like to ask or comment on before we move on to picks? All right. Well, let's go ahead and move on to picks. Uh, what we do at the end of every episode is we uh, mention 
some tools, something that's been useful to us over the past week or at some point in the past. And I'd like to start off today, I think I'm going to spend, I've spent a couple of episodes in the past, and I think I'll spend the rest of the ones we record this year, recommending various business books. The one um, I pick for today is A Higher Standard, which is by Anne Dudwoody, who is America's first uh, woman four-star general. Uh, She has a great story. Uh, I've adopted a lot of the higher standard standard language in my work with open source communities. Uh, But one of the things I got the most out of her book was she talks about knowing when you can win someone over and when you can't and knowing where to put your energy. Uh, Since I am in my mid 30s now, but one of the big things I noticed when I turned 30 was I suddenly had finite energy. I had to be intentional about where I put it. So it's always great to get perspective on that. And I highly recommend it. Uh, Chuck, what about you? Nice. Yeah, that that's awesome. And and I love books like that too that just push you to change the way you think. I had some picks and I can't think of what they are at the moment. So uh, uh I guess a few picks that I have. One is is uh Walmart has these really inexpensive but really decent quality water bottles. I have one on my desk here. Uh the brand is Contigo, C O N T I G O. And uh it's just, it's really nice to just have water around that I can just, you know, drink when I'm sitting at my desk and uh, really, really digging that. And then um, the other pick that I have, I've got about a zillion of these now is conference swag socks. Hmm. Um, I, I I just, I love them. A lot of them are kind of, they're, they're kind of compression socks, I guess, because they, you know, they squeeze on my feet. Um, some of them are thicker, some of them are thinner. But uh, yeah, I've got I've got a ton of just fun, nice socks or socks that have somebody's brand name on them. So anyway, uh, I'm going to pick those. Cool. I am wearing Kubernetes socks uh, as we speak that I got at uh, some DevOps days over the year. Uh, Tobias, how about you? Uh, right. So at X Matters, we have uh, one day a month that we call 555 Day, where we just play with technology for the day. And uh for the last couple of 555 days, I've been pretty into BigQuery, um, which is a GCP service. Um, I, I really like how modern uh, data warehouses or data lakes allow you to uh, defer the decision of how you want to decompose your data for as long as possible. And I think that fits a lot better with Agile uh software development, uh, rather than, you know, choosing a star schema and being stuck with it for the next 10 years. So loving BigQuery and also chatbots. I'm into chatbots. I live in Slack. Um, we use off shelf chatbots, like simple things that will expand a Jira ticket into a channel. If you refer to its uh, ID, super useful. We also have our own chatbots that go out and, uh, look at, for example, what do all of our instances look like from the point of view of Pingdom? Um, so super useful in lots of different contexts. I, I love chatbots. Awesome. Uh, Troy, what about you? I've got a couple. I guess first off for Chuck, you know, I don't, we don't have compression socks for you, but we do have branded toques or knit hats. Toque is for our Canadian on the phone here. But I, I think I need one of those. compression toques? A compression too. Yeah. So instead of squeezing your feet, we can squeeze your brain and keep you warm in the winter. So we'll have to uh, send one your way. But I, I think for my picks, a couple of things, I'm, I tend to be a little contrarian on things. So instead of focusing on technology, I'm kind of focusing on um, old fashioned customer service, kind of human to human customer service. So a recent book was uh, one written by the founder of Zappos um, called The uh, Delivering Happiness. And the idea behind that is delivering an unexpected wow moment to people. So that works great for business and it works great in your personal life. Um, Looking for opportunities maybe to do something kind for somebody that is not expecting it is a lot of fun for you and a lot of fun for them. Um, And since it is the holiday timing, I would also um, suggest that Random Acts of Kindness for Charities it's, it's a great uh, pick for yourself and for the charity itself. My personal favorite is an organization called bestfriends.org, which is based in Southern Utah and houses about, I think in the neighborhood of 4,000 homeless pets. 
so adoptable pets, and that's where they go to uh, hang out until they are uh, adopted. So, you know, this this time of year, I think it's a great time for us to remember uh, the organizations that we care about and to support them. Yeah, I've heard of Best Friends. Uh, yeah, I live in uh, in Utah, just south of Salt Lake. So, uh-huh. I'm just trying to trying to remember where I've seen them before. But yeah, cool stuff. And uh, yeah, I need one of those uh, one of those uh, hats because. Today's yeah. political climate, no matter which side you're on, somebody's yeah. going to make your head want to explode. And so if I can keep all the pieces together. Well, and it also <laughs> feel like a warm hug. And sometimes you can use a warm hug. These Heck days. yeah. Brain <laughs> hug. Brain hug. I love it. Exactly. All right. Good deal. Um, I'm, I'm curious if people want to uh, check in with you guys individually. Can they find you on Twitter or GitHub or something? Yes. So my Twitter handle is uh, at T McAlpin, T-M-C-A-L-P-I-N-X-M for X Matters. Uh, and then, you know, through the X Matters website is another easy way to get me or through LinkedIn. Yeah, for me, LinkedIn is probably the best place. And uh, you can find me by my rather unique name, Tobias Duncron. That's D-U-N-N hyphen K-R-A-H-N. Not too many of us out there. So you should be able to find me that way. Cool. Awesome. Well, you know, both uh, Troy and Tobias, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was a great conversation. Learned a lot and really appreciate your insights. Our pleasure. Thanks, Dale. Thanks, Chuck. It was great to meet you guys. It's been time. Yeah, thanks for having us. All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for uh, tuning in and listening. And we will be in your ears again next week. Take care, everyone. Max out, everybody. Bye-bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.